You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, thank you very much for coming to this um, SEI event. It's the last one, I think, that we've got with you, Michael. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the, the sort of purpose for this evening's event is really to have a discussion um, with all of you and with Chris and, and Michael and myself um, around integrating climate change into business, but also very much into universities and to, into university life. Um, so before we go any further though, I'd just like to um, acknowledge um, that we are on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And uh, I think this is something for me, I always say this very, very purposefully when I'm talking in the context of climate change, because I think there's an enormous amount that we can learn, an enormous amount of wisdom that is currently untapped um, uh, from our Indigenous people. Um, so really want to acknowledge the learning that they have gained, the wisdom they have gained over, over millennia, and um, where we're, we're really only starting in this space. Okay. So in addition to that, would very much like to thank the Sydney Environment Institute for hosting these events. So we've got um, David Schlossberg, the director, and Michelle Santan, deputy director, who's been instrumental in producing these events. Um, and we also have um, Genevieve and, um, oh, sorry, hang on, names, uh, Christine, sorry, and um, Charlotte here today as well. And they've, they've been a really big help in organizing everything. And then have to thank Chris, because Chris is the man who's responsible, really, for um, arranging that Mike could come out and see us. Um, so thank you very much, Chris, for doing that, and Mike for making the journey. Um, okay, so just a, a, before we continue properly, um, my name's Tanya, um, and I'm an accounting academic, and many people might wonder what an accounting academic is doing in the climate change space. Um, well, it's... Um, I'm going to get quite personal here. Um, it's something that's worried me for some time, and I, I had a time in my life where I was climbing a lot of mountains um, professionally, and um, it became really evident to me that there was something very, very wrong uh, going on. Um, so, I yes, so I have come to this space, um, but it worries me a lot. And so it actually causes, for me, what is coming to be known as climate anxiety. Okay, so it's a mental health issue for me. And as a consequence, the, I find that the best way of dealing with it is by doing something about it, feeling that I have some, some sort of control over it. Um, so what I try to do is to integrate climate change into everything that I do in my work. So that means in my teaching, in my research, um, also in the way that I live um, as, as a mum, as a human being. Um, but definitely in my work. Um, so as Naomi Klein says, um, this changes everything. So the question for me is how do we mainstream climate change so that it does become part of the fabric of our everyday lives, okay? And uh, for me, this has meant uh, stepping up a little bit, being bold and to stop apologizing that I care, because I do. Um, so the aim for today is um, to be proactive. Uh, this is sort of been mine aimed, be proactive, to talk about the things that we struggle with um, 
to ask what else can we do? Um, and we have two amazing people with us today to help us with that and who've been working in this space um, over many, many years. So we have Michael Mann, uh, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State University, who has joint appointments um, in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and Environmental Sciences Institute. Um, he is also director of the Penn State Earth Systems Science Center and was recently awarded the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement, which is sort of the Nobel Prize equivalent uh, for the environment. So, which is a, um, I think an excellent recognition of all your work over these many years, Mike. And then we have Chris Wright. Um, who will be familiar to many of you here. He's a professor of organizational studies at the um, business school here at Sydney University. And he teaches and researches um, business responses to climate change, sustainability, and also um, is, is interested as a consequence of that in critical understandings of capitalism. Um, he's published extensively on the political economy of climate change and in organizational and sustainability literature and corporate and engages in corporate political activity. Um, they've both published books. So um, yes, highly cited authors. And then we have you guys, um, the audience today. So um, as I said, want this session to be an interactive session. So I'll be starting off with a few questions uh, for Mike and Chris, um, but very much want for questions uh, to come from the audience. Um, before we start though, just wanted to get a show of hands. So how many people here are from within the university sector, either as academics or managers? Okay, so quite a few. And how many are from outside? So it's probably about a 60-40 split. Okay. Um, okay, so that, that's sort of, uh, plays a little bit into how we'll be uh, framing things tonight. Okay, so I might just start off with you, Mike, if that's okay. Um, so you're a climate scientist. Um, you've been visiting Australia, and I understand that it has been something of a shocking experience for you. Well, it's been for all of us, really, over the last few months, hasn't it? Um, so what was it like stepping off the plane and seeing our grey skies? Yeah, thanks, um, and, and thanks for uh, you know, hosting this event. Um, it was a surreal experience for me. Uh, more than two years ago, I applied uh, for a, a sabbatical here in Australia to collaborate with some scientists at the University of New South Wales, um, looking at the impact of climate change on extreme weather events in Australia. So that was two years ago um, we had planned this visit. And then, of course, I arrived here in mid-December for what is arguably the most profound example we have ever seen of the impacts of uh, extreme weather events in Australia, the bushfires, uh, the, the, the heat, the drought, the bushfires, the subsequent floods. Um, many of you are probably uh, aware now that we're seeing the next uh, sort of chapter in this story unfolding with the third major bleaching event of the Great Barrier Reef uh, of the last five years uh, now taking place. Um, I'm happy that uh, I had a chance to see the Great Barrier Reef with my family back in December, uh, but it was sort of a wistful experience to know that as we're, you know, enjoying this natural wonder with our daughter, our 14-year-old daughter, it, it, it's something that she may not have the, the opportunity to experience uh, with her children, grandchildren down the road. Um, 
And so here in Australia, I, I feel like, you know, I've been studying climate change, the science of climate change, and talking about the impacts of climate change for more than two decades. But I hadn't really come into contact, direct contact with the impacts of climate change until I arrived here in Australia in mid-December. It's also meant that I've been spending my time in a very different way from what I envisioned. Uh, in uh, unfortunate sense, it's provided uh, an opportunity, sort of a, a teaching moment. And it's, uh, it's afforded me uh, quite a few opportunities to talk uh, about the impacts of climate change and to engage in efforts to communicate the impacts of climate change to the public and to policymakers, and I've had some interesting adventures along the way that I'd be happy to to talk about, involving um, some uh, high-profile uh, politicians uh, like Barnaby Joyce, um, uh, going to toe to toe with him on 60 Minutes um, some weeks ago. Uh, but I feel like, and, and I think Chris will speak to this uh, later. Um, you know, they're the tipping points that we fear in the climate system, where we warm the oceans enough that we destabilize the Antarctic, uh, Western Arctic ice sheet, and that leads to you know, meters of, of sea level rise. And, and we're probably very close to committing to that tipping point. Um, there are other possible tipping points in the climate system that we fear crossing, but there's also a potential tipping point in the public consciousness, a good tipping point that I think we might be on the precipice of sort of going through, and, and, and we can talk about that more, I think, later on. Uh, on, on um, your experience here in Australia, um, so I'm not a climate scientist, so please correct me. You play one on television. <laughs> um, I, but I, my understanding is that there's a lot of warming that's locked into the oceans um, that, and that there's an inertia in the, in the system, which, which effectively means that over the next 20 or 30 years, whichever sort of climate scenario you're looking at, it's pretty much the same, isn't it? So if, if we know that that's locked in and if we think about what the bushfire season has had meant for Australia and we've got now this third bleaching event, what do you see for Australia over the next 20 to 30 years? There's nothing, even if we stopped emitting tomorrow, there's not, nothing we can do about that warming that's there, is there? Or is oh, there? There, we, there is something okay. we can do about it. And there's been an important sort of change in scientific understanding. Okay. And so, you know, there's, there's much that we've known literally for more than a century. The basics of climate science, the greenhouse effect, uh, the warming of the planet. Uh, I, I like to show an overhead sometimes, an ExxonMobil internal document, uh, 1982, which had a projection of CO2 increase and, and the associated global temperature increase back in 1982, and we're exactly where ExxonMobil predicted we would be, which is ironic because the only reason CO2 levels have gotten to the current level is because ExxonMobil and fossil fuel interests were so successful in lobbying against efforts to actually regulate carbon emissions. Um, but there's a little bit of good news. Um, as we've sort of refined our, in essence, the, the way we do these climate modeling experiments, what we used to do is we used to simply turn up the carbon dioxide in the model and allow the model to adjust to it. But in the real world, that's not what happens. In the real world, we put carbon into the atmosphere it gets um, some of it absorbed into the ocean, some of it absorbed by uh, plant life, um, the terrestrial biosphere. And so that has refined our thinking. As we do experiments now, 
with climate models where we don't fix the carbon dioxide concentration. We just specify the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere and we allow the much more sophisticated representation of the ocean and the atmosphere and the biosphere to figure out what happens to that carbon. We now understand that the warming that we experience now is pretty much a function of the cumulative carbon emissions up to this point. That's actually empowering in a sense because it means that our actions now have a direct impact on how much warming is locked in. It's also the reason that we can talk about carbon budgets. Um, the, the idea that there's a certain amount of carbon that we can afford to burn and remain below, say, one and a half degrees Celsius, which by many is sort of considered the, where we see the, 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 the most dangerous impacts of climate change. The fact that we can talk about how much carbon there is left to burn to avert crossing that threshold is because the warming that we experience you know, now and in the foreseeable future is really a function of the carbon we have burned up to now. If we rapidly transition away from our burning of fossil fuels, if we drop carbon emissions by a factor of two within the next 10 years, and then bring them to carbon neutral by 2050, which uh, Zali Stagel's uh, bill, um, some of you may have read uh, about, uh, seeks to do, um, if we do that, we can actually prevent uh, warming beyond that one and a half degree sort of dangerous level. I think that's what they call the exponential roadmap, isn't it? It's sort of halving and then halving again. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, so, Chris, over to you. Um, you've been involved in this space at the university a lot longer than I have at, at, at the business school. Um, do you feel we're reaching a tipping point? Because I know you've had it's so well. I don't know. Has it has it sometimes been hard being in this space in the oh, business? Oh world? yeah, look totally. Um, have we reached a tipping point? I mean, there's a sort of a there's a good news version of this and a bad news version, and it depends where you look. Uh, years ago, I've sort of been studying, researching, teaching this space for probably more than ten years now, and back when the Stern report came out in the UK, I think it was around 2006, 2007. I can remember being at UNSW and economists running around with the Stern report saying, look, look, um, uh, an admission that climate change is the greatest market failure the world has ever seen. We're going to price the externality. This is going to revolutionise the energy industry worldwide. And there was a lot of optimism back then. And we had Al Gore's movie Inconvenient Truth. We had Kevin Rudd winning the 07 election. And that sort of period was a tipping point, I think, in, in popular awareness in this country and around the world around the climate crisis and political responses. And then the Copenhagen climate, Copenhagen climate talks didn't work out the way we thought. Um, in Australia, Rudd sort of walked back from the carbon price and, and it all started to fall apart rather quickly. And obviously, the, the vested interests got organised in a, in a very uh, effective way, uh, the Minerals Council and, and others. Uh, and the, the period since then has really been pretty grim on the whole climate politics space. So, you know, researching business and economics in this space from 2006 through the present day, initial optimism, and then we've had this long plateau of, um, you know, retrograde steps, walking back from the carbon price with, with Abbott as Prime Minister, um, the current uh, complete uh, lack of policy on both sides of politics about what we're going to do. Uh, and in the business world, I guess, uh, you can find rays of sunshine and hope in certain industries and sectors, or individual companies and parts within individual companies where people really get it and they're trying to do things, but mostly within the confines of their organisation. That's the biggest problem I have with the business response, that it is very atomised to a systemic problem. And we really need that regulatory leadership 
around carbon pricing and getting serious with mitigation at a, at a high level, which we're not seeing. Um, so I guess personally, I, I often do this sort of mind game where I think, what will it take for the world to sort of wake up to the climate crisis? And I thought when Superstorm Sandy hit New York City, 2012, I think it was, um, you know, the, the richest city and the richest country in the world is basically underwater and uh, Business Week says it's global warming stupid on the cover. The politics changed for about two weeks and you could see that there was movement there, but then we went back to that business as usual pattern. And so there is this, this other inertia in the system, which is the political inertia, that the business as usual model of, it's almost magical thinking that we can continue to use coal, oil and gas ad infinitum with no bad consequences. That just keeps continuing despite the weather events we're seeing. So long story short, I guess in the last six months, I have seen a, a change in the public awareness on this issue. And I think it's a number of things. I think it's uh, the, the school climate strikes phenomenon amongst the younger generation. I think the Extinction Rebellion protests in the UK and elsewhere, there was a sort of almost like an awareness that people were getting, this is an emergency, we need to do something. And then of course, in Australia, the bushfires have made that very real for people who have been materially remote from those consequences. So I'm, I'm hopeful that there is this awareness starting to really percolate through. So in terms of ad advocacy, you've both been involved in advocacy. So Mike, clearly you've done a lot of work on the political front, in the media, et cetera. Where, where do you see this, where do you, I suppose, you know, if we wanted to go out and be advocates, where would you say is the most powerful space in which we can operate? And we're not climate, well, I don't know, there may be climate, are there climate scientists in the audience? No? Oh, yeah, Andy, you are. <laughs> um, yeah, but for m most of yeah. us aren't. So how, what can we do, do you think? Yeah, um, voting. <laughs> voting on this issue, voting on climate. Uh, the impasse uh, to a large extent is in our political system. It isn't that there's a lack of willpower, in my view, among the people um, uh, or the institutions or even business, which increasingly understands the profound risk that climate change poses to the business community. And, and Chris and I have been involved in a number of uh, conversations, as have you, um, in that space. Uh, the, the problem, of course, is that we still um, you know, are in a political system where uh, fossil fuel interests have a stranglehold uh, on the reins of power. Uh, and in alliance with a media empire in Australia, which promotes their talking points and promotes climate change misinformation and disinformation and has enough power to determine who gets elected and who doesn't. Um, in that environment, it's very difficult to, to foresee moving in the direction we need to go, putting a price on carbon, which Australia had. Um, Australia is unique among major industrial nations. Uh, it was ahead of the game. You actually had a price on carbon, and then, uh, of course, it was, um, um, it, it was dismantled uh, when Tony Abbott uh, took over. Um, so it's essential to regain control of the politics, um, and people can do that. Uh, we, there's a lot of talk these days about what individuals can do, and so much of it is about, you know, uh, you know not eating meat and not flying. Um, and, and to me, you know, we should all be, you know, good citizens. We should all engage in, you know, responsible efforts to decrease our carbon footprints. We should all do these things, but let's not allow that to become an excuse for not pushing for the systemic change that we need and for demanding that politicians institute 
policies that will move us collectively in the direction that we need to go. So voting on this issue and talking about this issue and holding policymakers accountable and taking away the social license that, uh, I will name names, that the Murdoch media has had for too long you know, when it comes to the prevail of misinformation and disinformation. And we're seeing some movement in that direction. If you've been following the news in the wake of the bushfires, we saw News Corp, the, the Murdoch media empire, called out by James Murdoch, uh, Rupert Murdoch's own son. There was sort of a whistleblower within News Corp who circulated an email uh, denouncing the misinformation that they promoted about the bushfires. So my feeling is that there is renewed pressure uh, on 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 the uh, again on the Murdoch media, um, and, and there's the potential uh, that they uh, will lose the social license that they have had for too long. Um, as long as they uh, you know have the ability to permeate the airwaves and the newspapers with misinformation and disinformation, and control the results of the electoral process here in Australia we won't get the sort of progress we need. Um, and so it's holding policymakers accountable, um, voting, but also holding you know, uh, the media accountable um, for uh, their role in this conversation. Um, so Chris, in terms of the advocacy work you've been involved in, so I, I'm, I'm, aware of, I'm aware that you're quite an active Twitter uh, user. Uh, you both are, aren't you? <laughs> um, and also you take amazing photos, Chris, um, of, of beautiful places. And so where do, you, where do you feel you personally can have the most impact? And, and as, as per my question to Mike, what about the rest of us? Yeah. Um, with climate change, it's interesting because I work in a business school at a university and for some of you out there who work in business schools will know uh, who are interested in climate, one of the big problems is it's, it's a bit like Fight Club. You know, the first rule of Fight Club is there's no, you don't talk about Fight Club. It's like climate change. First rule of climate change, we don't talk about climate change. So in the business schools, it's a bit of, it has been a taboo subject and it's, it's, it's frustrated me over 10 years that this is the biggest issue we will face as a species. That's my honest opinion. But, this century, this is going to be the existential threat we face. Uh, and yet, uh, we're, we're not engaging with that in terms of our education and our research. And it was seen as this sort of fringe area, sort of weird, hippie sort of stuff, the environment. And it's become increasingly clear that uh, having a habitable climate is going to underpin pretty well everything we do economically and socially going forward. So, um, in terms of how to have an impact, I try to do it through the research and the teaching by saying, well, this is a key strategic issue facing businesses, it's a, a key issue, existential issue facing our societies, um, future generations. As Naomi Klein says, it changes everything. So we need to sort of embed that in our curricula and our research. And there's been, I wouldn't say pushback, but just sort of neglect and not really much interest in this, which has been frustrating. So I've tried to overcome that by engaging quite strongly with social media and, and, and talking about climate change every chance I get. Uh, and that's tough sometimes because you become the sort of tolerated eccentric. You know, he's the person who talks about climate change, a bit weird is over there sort of thing. But uh, again, going back to that first sort of question, I think the times are changing and there is more appetite now and a recognition that this is the issue to engage with because it will fundamentally change our lives and our children's lives. So I think what can we do? We can, we can have those conversations and not pull back and not, 
self-censor ourselves when someone says, what do you do? Oh, I'm interested in climate change. And you, you can see the shutters coming down, but then the trick is to engage in the conversation and get people involved. And that then leads to the political sort of organisation, I think, around that. Um, I'm just going to talk about the, well, ask a little bit around the business school specifically at the moment, because um, we, we've had a few changes recently. So there was a master's of, what was it sustainability management? No, we have a master's of sustainability in the universe cross yeah, faculty, yes. But there, was there previously another um, course that was in the business school? Yes, we have a, a postgraduate unit, uh, organisational sustainability, yeah. That's right, yeah. And, and that's no longer... Well, it's, it's been pulled this year. Okay. Um, hopefully it'll come Lack back. Lack of demand or...? No, the demand's there. I mean, it, it's difficult because when you first teach students in the business school, often it's the first time they've talked about the natural environment, which I find bizarre. And then you ask climate change and they go, huh, what's this got to do with business? So I think we need to, within business schools, sort of recalibrate and think about how the natural environment underpins the economy yeah. and society. And yeah. at the moment we just assume the clean air and water and the natural environment will be out there forever and ever. And it, we're blind, I think, to the consequences of what's happening. So I'm, As we've been saying recently, there is no economy on a dead planet. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I know I've got a couple of colleagues in the audience, I think Connie and, and Anna there, and they've got um, uh, units in extended um, reporting and accounting, and, and they really look at integrating um, different environmental and social aspects um, into accounting in particular. And something um, I've been involved, involved in recently, which is um, a bit of an experiment, but I just want to put it out there for university colleagues who are here, um, is uh, I sort of keep as my little mantra, mainstreaming climate change. So, um, so what we're doing in our accounting unit, it's a mainstream management accounting unit um, this semester, we are integrating a case study of a winery in the Hunter Valley and we're teaching everything that we need to teach about management accounting in that unit. So what are direct costs, what are indirect costs, what's cost volume profit analysis, what's activity-based costing, what are different ways of capital budgeting, et cetera. But we're doing it all from the perspective of this winery and we're showing from day one when we introduce this winery that the direct costs are changing, that the variable costs are changing, that volumes are going down and it's all because of climate change. So every time we teach one of these accounting concepts or techniques, we're building climate change into it. And I'm interested in that as a way in which almost any subject can be taught. And I think also, other sustainability measures. So yesterday we were, the three of us, we were at Lend-Lease and um, Kate Harris, she's the global head of sustainability there and she made the comment that climate change is a bit like a Trojan horse. So because of climate change and because it's being taken so seriously now by central banks, credit rating agencies and so forth, it actually provides an opportunity for us to bring other aspects of sustainability such as gender equity, um, poverty, because uh, I, I know we have colleagues across the university who are also interested in, in other aspects of sustainability. So that's, I suppose, where I sort of want to go to now. Um, since we have a diverse audience here, some of you are from the university, uh, some of you I'm assuming are from outside in business. Um, when we're looking at bringing climate change into our working lives, um, I'll just wait for that one. 
thanks. <laughs> so when we're bringing climate change, or if we want to bring climate change into our working lives, how do we go about doing that? And for some of us, it's easier than for others. And I'm just wondering, does anyone have questions for either Mike or Chris around this? Any, anything? So, you know, are there issues you've had with regards to research, with regards to teaching, with regards to budgets that you've tried to set up or, you know, questions that you've tried to set up in industry and explore, um, grants that you've tried, it, you know. It's very nice to be here. My name is Warwick Giblin. I was interested, uh, Michael, on what you were talking about, about regaining control of the politics. Um, I've been very interested in this topic for 30 years. And let me assure you that as far as the New South Wales government is concerned, is still very much business as usual for giving approvals to major developments to do with the fossil fuel industry, right? There are attempts everywhere by business and indirectly by the politicians to try and counteract um, any credibility given to looking at carbon risks in the regulatory regime. How do you see you can regain control of the politics when this is the dynamics we have to operate in. Yeah, thanks. Um, and uh, of course, I, I speak as an outsider here, so I don't want to pretend to, uh, you know, to understand all the vagaries of uh, in history of uh, Australian politics. But I have tried to familiar my, uh, familiarize myself uh, with that history because there's such interesting parallels um, between the United States and Australia. Um, interesting similarities and interesting differences. Um, the similarity is an entrenched fossil fuel interest that has used all of the, the tools uh, available to it to prevent uh, any action uh, from taking place. And, and, and indeed, while you know, there are, um, you know, in the United States, it's a two-party uh, system, uh, it's a little bit different. Um, uh, you have, you know, the Greens, uh, Liberals, uh, Nationals, uh, Labor, um, and so there are coalitions, and of course there's a coalition government right now uh, that uh, reflects a constituency that is closely aligned with the coal industry and the fossil fuel industry um, and not representing the, the interests of the people, uh, arguably it's supposed to represent. Um, the fact is that, uh, you know, the, uh, the coalition government uh, was, you know, was elected um, in the last election in part because of uh, the, the influence of uh, the Murdoch media in sort of vilifying uh, the, um, you know, the, the ETS, the, you know, as a carbon tax, um, uh, convincing uh, Australians that uh, it was against their you know, best interests to actually act on climate. Uh, that that megaphone uh, is extremely powerful, and in order to regain uh, control of the political system, uh, you there needs to be a way to, as I said before, to sort of take away the social license that the Murdoch media has had for too long to poison the political discourse, the public discourse in this country. Um, and so, to me. Uh, you know, the, the, the way you win the political battle is by going directly at the Murdoch media. Um, and right now they are at a very vulnerable uh, 
point, as I said before, in terms of uh, their social license, uh, the the prevail of, of misinformation about the bushfires um, has put them in a precarious position uh, as far as uh, credibility is concerned. And uh, I, I think it's it's important to take advantage of this moment to to to, to take to, to make sure that they no longer get uh, you know a, a free license to to continue poisoning the discourse. Yeah, it's a it's a really excellent question, and your points are really well made, Michael. I mean, the the, the current political problem we have is that uh, a product of a century of institutionalized politics, where coal, oil, and gas interests have infiltrated our political apparatus, and there's the revolving doors of personnel between the peak industry bodies and the advisors to the PM and uh, there's the campaign donations and the public relations. And these firms really run government, have run government policy for decades, as um, Guy Pearce uh, documented, uh, talked about the greenhouse mafia under, under John Howard uh, and the measures that were made there. So how do you, how do you undo that? And it's, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, part of it is, uh, is a, a sort of, as Michael said, attacking the sort of the disinformation that comes from the media. But I think the other part to it is, and this is the problem we have, there's no alternative... Um, uh, vision for what the alternative to coal, oil and gas looks like because it's very easy for both sides, coalition and labour, to talk about jobs and growth, which is big new thermal open co coal mines in Queensland or, God forbid, even coal-fired power stations. Um, now, these things don't actually employ that many people, but it's a powerful discourse politically. And we need to, the, po the political parties need to come up with the positive vision of what that alternative looks like. And there's a lot of glib talk about just transitions and things, but we need to have that very powerful sort of vision presented of a decarbonised economy in the future where jobs and well-being are created in a more sustainable way. And it can be done. And there are examples around the world we could pick from, you know, Germany with energy vendor and Costa Rica and places. Uh, but there's no appetite at the moment in politics for that because of this institutionalised politics and capture by the, the big resourcing companies. Yeah, actually, let me follow up very briefly because I, I think that's such an important point. It's about narratives, um, and we need to replace this this narrative that the fossil fuel industry has very successfully uh, sort of uh, reinforced uh, that uh, fossil fuels are, are tied to productivity and progress and economic growth. Um, there is an alternative vision of a renewable energy-driven future, and it's a very powerful vision. I mean, Australia is perhaps better situated than any other country um, to tap into sun and wind and geothermal. You have all of the, the natural resources, uh, natural renewable resources a country could hope to have. And, 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 and that's the story that needs to be told of a positive future uh, where there are far more jobs available uh, potentially in renewable energy than there are in the largely automated and mechanized uh, fossil fuel industry today. Um, so, it, but to be able to tell your story, you need to have reach. You need to have a megaphone. Um, you need to be able to outcompete again the sort of uh, the media machine that the fossil fuel industry currently has working in its favor, and and that's a challenge. Um, and and we need to be innovative in thinking about how we get those messages out and how we go up against this uh, fossil fuel juggernaut that's been so effective in in sort of dictating the public discourse. Um, I'd like to push you both a little bit on this point. Um, so, Mike, you're able to publish in The Guardian. I'm not. I'd like to, but, yeah, I'm just not there yet. 
Um, Chris, I know that you've published, as I, I think you may have published in The Guardian, I know you published for The Conversation, um, yeah. But a lot of us can't do that. So, and, and, and you talk about taking away this license to operate. How do we do that when we don't have that power that you two have? So, yeah, it's, how do we do that? I think Chris had the answer earlier, is talking about it, making sure that this is part of our daily conversation, that mm -hmm. this is what people talk about around the dinner table, um, uh, at, uh, you know, uh, you know in, in social events, uh, that we're having this conversation because we're talking about climate change, a natural extension of that conversation is why we're not seeing the action that's necessary. And people, you know, people need to be, to be asking that question. And, you know, that's the beginning of a political movement. Mm -hmm. um, and we have the other ingredients in place. The youth climate movement, as Chris said, has sort of recentered this issue where it needs to be centered. It's about our ethical obligation to future generations to not destroy the planet. Um, that's a very powerful argument. And I think along with the unprecedented extreme weather events and the bushfires, it's created an environment where there is a potential to change the conversation. And, and so now's the opportunity for, for people to engage and to use whatever means they have avail available to them to, to make this issue part of the conversation. The, the other aspect of it, speaking as um, sort of a social science academic, I guess, is you get lots of knockbacks, you know, whether you're pitching to the Guardian in the conversation or you're submitting an article to an academic journal, you get lots and lots and lots of knockbacks and rejections. And so one of the other avenues that fortuitously I fell into is that whole social media piece, which does allow you to continue the conversation into audiences you wouldn't normally interact with as academics. So Twitter and blogs and even Facebook, this sort of stuff, you can continue that conversation and meet people and interact. And it's a two-way flow of information. You have conversations with people that allows you to extend your influence. And I guess the other thing is, of course, the teaching. So I try to weave the climate into the teaching. Um, wherever I can, uh, even if it's not a direct sustainability unit, and sort of bring it in as you do with your course. So, uh, thank you, everyone. <laughs> thank you all for being here. Um, um, my name's Elisa, and I just wanted to ask a question about investment in different forms of energy, because I know that in the US, there's a lot of movement towards creating a Green New Deal. There's been a lot of um, media around that. And in Australia, we also have an independent MP, Zali Stegel, who's proposing something similar. Um, so these, I'd love to hear from you both about how feasible you think these things are to get up. Um, but at the same time, we heard from the Prime Minister just recently who's uh, announced that in investment in technology to tackle climate change will be away from renewable sources. And they're just going to divest in those sources. And so we do have um, an abundance of potential in this country to harness renewable energy, but without that investment in that, how are we going to do that? And how can the average person um, stop that sort of divestment from happening and encourage investment? Yeah, you know, they're, they're, the, the, we're fortunate in that you do have entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and Mike Cannon Brooks, who are, you know, are, are still helping move Australia in that direction, despite the lack of support within the government. The business community has a, a very important role to play here. Uh, one of the, the uh, groups that I've been meeting with are, um, you know, uh, people in, in, in Australia, some of the leaders in, in uh, sort of the world of finance um, and super annuities, super funds, um, uh, 
they're, they, are in an ability, they are in a position um, to actually influence uh, whether or not we can continue to, to provide funding for expanding fossil fuel infrastructure. And it's possible that we will see movement and progress there before we are in a position to actually see political progress. So that's worth keeping in mind. There are sort of people within the business community who are on the right uh, side of this issue. Um, and, you know, and what that means is that if that aligns if in two years from now, uh, you elect a government that's also uh, in support of climate action, then you'll have all of these sort of um, uh, avenues aligned at the same time. Um, the, uh, you know, so what can, can you do? Again, you know, I, I come back to there are two basic things, you know, that, that everybody can do that can influence you know, the direction that we go. And one of them is participation in the political process. And that means voting, but it can also mean lobbying, uh, you know, uh, speaking out, writing letters to the local paper. Um, the other side does that very effectively, uh, trying to influence the conversation and talking about it. Um, and that's, you know, th those are, that's very powerful. Social movements are very powerful. Uh, as I said before, that the youth climate movement has really changed uh, the, you know, changed the situation quite a bit. It's provided, you know, they've given us a foot in the door and now is, is you know, it's essential that we take advantage of that. We can't leave it on the kids. We can't leave it on, uh, on their backs. We need to take advantage of the, the environment they've created. Yeah, just very quickly. I think there are fractions of capital involved in the business politics debate. And I know interviewing a lot of sort of senior sustainability people in, in big organizations, um, they just sort of often describe it as like fighting against the tide. The tide is very much the business as usual, coal and gas as energy produces. And they're trying to push back against that sort of century of institutionalized politics. And it's really hard because the other side doesn't really have to do much. It just has to sort of through its industry associations push influence at a, at a political level. Uh, but, you know, there are these signs of change. You know, Ross Garneau's recent book about, you know, Australia is a super uh, renewable energy superpower. Uh, the technologies are there. It's about sort of connecting the dots and trying to change that political influence. Uh, and there are signs that that is happening. But you have established industry groups that are very effective at lobbying in a certain direction. Uh, just recently, the Business Council coming out and saying gas is the bridge fuel. You know, they're saying, yes, we believe in net zero emissions by 2050, but gas will be the bridge fuel, which is, again, sort of a, a zombie sort of meme that they bring out, which uh, is not where we want to go. Uh, so it's a tough fight. Yeah, I was just going to say, this is sort of the, the theme of the book that I'm writing right now is very much about uh, how as we move away from hard denial, denial of the, the reality and impacts of climate change, because it's just not credible, especially here in Australia right now, to deny that something's happening. We see the emergence of sort of soft denial, faux solutions, uh, things that don't actually exist, like clean coal or, you know, uh, <laughs> right, uh, or, um, uh, you know, natural gas as a bridge to the future. It's, it's a bridge to nowhere. Natural gas takes us in the wrong direction. And so what's happening is this, these diversionary efforts to get us um, to, to look towards false solutions um, or to focus, as I said before, on individual action. There's a deflection campaign that's underway to sort of um, to divert attention away from systemic change, which is essential. And 
and policy to individual action. Uh, there are a number of other sort of uh, fronts in this new war on climate action that we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of the evolving nature of the effort to uh, essentially stop the, the, the sort of um, to, to blunt the, the, the clean energy revolution. I'd actually just like to chip in. Um, so one of a recommendation I heard from Emma Hurd, who's um, uh, the executive director of the um, investor group on climate change. So she, she suggested, I think it was her, it may, might have been Sarah Barker. One of them suggested um, that super funds actually get very, very few letters from their constituents. And if you think about, so I, I'm actually not too concerned about your question because I think money is moving very, very rapidly and it's happening without government. I think the investment community and particularly asset owners, the super funds are moving, their, their awareness, not all super funds, but their awareness is, is moving there quite rapidly and they have a lot of power because they have a lot of capital behind them. I think one of the titles of Jeff's, one of Jeff Summerhay's speeches was the weight of money yeah, and the weight of money is moving. So I think as individuals, we can write to our super funds. And that, because they don't actually get many letters, um, we can actually cause something to happen there. I'm sorry, I'm gonna to go to someone who already has the mic back. Hi, yeah, thanks to the three of you for hosting this conversation. I have one comment, not a question, and then an actual question. But for things that we could actually do, as you're talking about taking away the social license to certain types of media, but, Print media is struggling quite a bit. So maybe, you know, having an individual subscription to a media service or a journal or something that's putting out good, reliable information, that might be a good thing that we can do as individuals. And then the question is, as you're talking about changing the vote and changing the narrative, I would imagine most of us in this room are having similar narratives and voting in similar directions. And through your experiences, what arguments or what narratives have you found effective for cracking that kind of other nut? Yeah, what lines of conversation or narratives or arguments have you found effective in your discourses for you know talking to people who aren't sitting here right now, the people who don't necessarily want to hear it? So I was going to comment on, on the first point that you mentioned, you know, the, the importance of um, you know, supporting uh, media organizations that are doing a good job uh, when it comes to climate and environmental sustainability. Uh, this afternoon, I actually did an event over at The Guardian, uh, a live uh, blog uh, event um, uh, to talk about sort of the, you know, uh, the, the current sort of climate um, situation here in Australia and the, the um, you know, in the political battles uh, when it comes to climate action in Australia. Uh, I subscribe to The Guardian. I would, uh, you know, uh, I, I would encourage other people to. Um, the Sydney Morning Herald uh, has been struggling. Um, they do a good job on climate. They've got some great reporters, some great environmental reporters. Uh, we need to make sure that these independent uh, media organizations um, you know, uh, that, that, that they, you know, can continue to, to, to function. Otherwise, we cede that territory entirely to, again, you know, the, the Murdoch uh, media. Um, so, yeah, subscribing, um, paying for a subscription to these, um, to these uh, uh, papers, um, doing everything we can to help, uh, you know, media organizations that are doing a good job and, um, and, and, and providing 
uh, positive feedback and encouraging uh, others to support them as well. I think that's critical. Yeah, so on the second point about narratives that work in conversations, um, there's actually quite a rich research literature on framing conversations around climate change to particular audiences and it sometimes can be a bit trite, but I actually think there's a lot in that around being aware of your audience and working out what resonates for them. Uh, and so there's lots of classic examples. So in, in the US around the security defense community, the, the dominant framing of climate change is this threat multiplier sort of logic that climate change is basically amplifying existing unstable regimes around food prices and, and, and other things. And so for them, what floats their boat is sort of geopolitical security and how climate change can act to uh, really exacerbate that. Uh, in other communities, it can be something completely different. So it might be around future generations and imagining futures that your kids might want to or not want to inherit um, in a more sort of utopian or dystopian sort of fashion. So there's different ways you can frame conversations about climate and a part of it is being sort of emotionally intelligent to what's going to resonate with your audience. Um, and so I, I think that that can be quite powerful. I know in the business community, you know, you're speaking to marketing managers, it's about, you know, clicks and other things. If it's a human resource or conversations about the war for talent. So there's ways that climate can be enrolled in those sort of debates that will then, you know, hit the target. Well, and the, of course, the business community, and uh, you know, that's a, a often risk and opportunity. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a potentially a relatively conservative constituency that. Um, that that I think it does not fully appreciate the the risk that is posed um, by climate change to the business community. So getting getting that word out there as well, and and, and framing it in in those terms as well. There's a lot of talk about energy and fossil fuels, but one of the big drivers in the economy in Australia is construction, and this is something that affects a whole lot more people, I think, and an area where I can't see ready solutions. Um, gathering and processing timber, I think, has a big carbon impact in two spheres. Um, cement production, um, plastics use. Um, but these things all hit home at the household level. And these are things which go to aspirational uh, goals as well. Um, how do you change attitudes and practices within the construction industry, bearing in mind the importance that has in the economy, the number of people who are employed in construction trades, and the fact that so many householders want to change their households or build a better house. One way to look at this is aggregate carbon emissions and where they occur in different sectors of the economy. And obviously energy is a big part of that. Industrial manufacturing is a big part. Agriculture is a third bucket. But um, construction is critical, and particularly around cement and steel. Um, there's a lot of carbon emissions, embedded emissions in there. And to be honest, a lot of the more enlightened sort of large property development type companies are struggling with this, particularly around the scope three emissions, which is the sort of emissions that come from their products and services that end users in the supply chain use. Um, I guess the positive side there is that they are thinking about how can we mitigate our scope three emissions, so beyond our direct uh, operational emissions. Uh, so they're aware of that, they're struggling with it. Uh, so there is thinking going on there, but yeah, no, you're right. That that, that whole property construction piece is, is huge. And there are significant sort of sections of, of homeowners and builders out there who want to do the right thing. Against that, there are many who don't, who just see, you know, concrete and continuation. 
Well, I was just going to say we had this conversation with the folks at Lend-Lease yesterday, and, and of course, this is what they do, and they're, they have an enlightened view about uh, the role of sustainability when it comes to uh, construction projects and infrastructure. Um, and one of the things ca that came up in that conversation, uh, that came up in this conversation earlier, was uh, carbon capture and sequestration. So there are lots of reasons to, to argue that uh, coal, uh, you know, CCS uh, in conjunction with coal is probably not the right direction to go. Um, uh, thermal coal. But when it comes to, um, you know, cement production, for example, there may actually be a role for, for carbon capture and sequestration in that particular sector. And that's one way to try to mitigate emissions in that sector. So there are ways, um, you know, changing practices um, where we could mitigate some of the carbon emissions with, within the manufacturing and construction sector. And if that was the only sector, and this is something that I always emphasize because people, for example, uh, like to talk about uh, aviation. It's very difficult to decarbonize aviation right now. We just don't have the fuels, biofuels that, uh, you know, or alternative fuels that can drive aviation, so we have to burn carbon. If that was it, if that was the only carbon we were producing, that's 3% of carbon emissions right now is aviation. And it is growing, and that's an issue that we need to talk about, but it's 3% of carbon emissions. So if our only carbon emissions were aviation and construction, most of the battle would be won. Um, and what that means is we've got to take advantage of the low-hanging uh, fruit um, and mitigate uh, carbon emissions in the transportation sector, in the energy sector, where it's easy to do, while we do invest in technology that is aiming to ultimately decarbonize these other more difficult sectors. I'm not a lawyer, but I've heard that uh, litigation against the federal government, even if it's blocked or not successful, can have the good effect of publicizing all the facts and moving the conversation and narrative. Um, I'm aware that we're meeting in the law school We've asked if there are any climate scientists. We haven't asked if there are any lawyers in the audience. Um, if there are any lawyers in the audience, or even if the panel wants to comment, uh, specifically cases like Juliana versus the United States and the agenda case, which I know is not applicable under Australian law, they, I think, uh, got a lot of publicity and have had a positive effect. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, uh, and, and we have sort of tort law in the United States that uh, doesn't, ha doesn't have an obvious uh, analogy uh, here in Australia, anti-racketeering laws, for example, um, that were successfully um, brought against the tobacco industry. And that's sort of a model now with the fossil fuel industry, because it turns out that their internal documents, just as the tobacco industry's internal documents show that they understood that there was a threat of their product um, early on. Uh, uh, their own scientists understood that and they attempted to, to hide that. And, and you can't, in the United States, that's considered you know, a fraud, it's, it's racketeering, and there's specific, uh, specific law um, that you can uh, use uh, to bring suits against uh, companies. And that was successfully done with the, uh, with the tobacco industry. There's a move now to think about how that might be done with fossil, the fossil fuel industry. But I think your point is a critical one. Even if those efforts are unsuccessful, it changes the, the conversation. Um, it puts these institutions on the defensive. Um, it uh, exposes to the public the infamy, <laughs> um, the villainy of uh, what uh, some of these interests have, uh, have engaged in in the past. And so I actually think that the sort of the collapse of tobacco in the United States probably had less to do with the um, 
the litigation itself and much more to do with the public awareness that came out of that litigation. And one of the most memorable scenes, and some of you may have seen this, is when there was a congressional hearing with all these tobacco CEOs um, being asked the same question, you know, did, did you know uh, about, you know, the, the, the threat of your product? Um, and each of them denied it, even though the paperwork demonstrates that they, they did. And, and so it exposed, uh, you know, these um, tobacco executives as sort of villains, and it changed the whole conversation. Yeah, in a sense, it's about that social license to operate. Um, so irrespective, as Michael's saying, of the sort of the, the legal cases, the Juliana case getting knocked out um, recently, it's raising the, the pressure on the fossil fuel industry that it's is losing that social licence. And the same thing, I think, um, people uh, criticise the fossil fuel divestment movement and saying, well, you're never going to bankrupt, bankrupt ExxonMobil. But that was never the intention, as I understand it, what Bill McKibben was trying to do with fossil fuel divestment. It was about labelling the fossil fuel industry as public enemy number one, sort of bringing the social spotlight onto this industry as endangering the future of, of humanity. And so it's a, it's a political move rather than an economic or financial move. And I think it's been highly successful in changing public perceptions of the industry. I think I'm in violent agreement and I'm from the law school, Sydney Law School and, and work in this space. And certainly I think it's not just about public interest advocacy, but internal activism by investors in the business community. Things are changing at a rapid pace, not just divestment, but within the actual corporate structure. What is the role of directors? What are their duties? Is it to their no, shareholders? or to stakeholders. And we can look to the UK and other legal systems. The Norwegian Pension Fund is a case on point of divestment and looking at uh, the role of the board. So I think that's also a very important point in terms of the role of the rule of law. And I th it's, it's also, sorry, just to go on this point, it's not just about the transition risks. It's also about the physical risks. And I know that there are a lot of um, organisations at the moment where their in-house legal are becoming quite concerned about the exposure that they have not only with respect to say you know being high carbon emitters but also with respect to individual assets that they own and manage and operate that may be exposed to some form of future physical risk from climate change and this is causing because if you think about some of these assets they might have 20 30 40 year lifetimes Okay, so, um, yeah, it's, it's a very active space at the moment. Actually, about greenwashing and going back to saying whether big business is listening to you or they're listening, right? And I, I happened to be in an investor meeting with a big company and the CEO in his presentation was bragging that he has reduced their carbon emissions by 30%, which is pretty impressive, and just happened to know how their business was, was unfolding. They had coincidentally offshored the most carbon intensive part of their manufacturing to Indonesia, right? And he, he was, I secured the explanation that they had shifted that to Indonesia and also why it was extremely carbon intensive. And um, I said, well then, how do you account for the offshore carbon dioxide emissions produced when, when they're making a product for your business operations in Australia? And he said, uh, well, well we, we still haven't figured that out yet. So do you think that's hypocrisy? And how, how do we respond to that kind of answer? 
Yeah, there's a lot of this around in the sense of the recent BP announcement, for instance, from the new CEO around um, mitigating their emissions and uh, that they were going to include scope three emissions in, in going net, net carbon by 2040, I think it was. Um, and, you know, obviously earlier example with BP was the whole Beyond Petroleum move in 2001, where they rebranded as, you know, Beyond Petroleum, John Brown. Um, so there's this... David Harvey, the geographer, makes this point that capitalism is very good at moving things around and not actually resolving problems, it's sort of shuffling things around. I think it's the case of carbon emissions. If you look at the way the developed world has, has offshored a lot of its carbon emissions to China. And so the problem, I guess, is um, holding countries and businesses to account. I mean, Australia is sort of guilty of this in a big way with our whole thermal coal exports and the Prime Minister saying, you know, well, we only produce 1.3% of global carbon emissions and we factor in our thermal coal exports. Well, that's not the way carbon accounting works globally. That's someone else. If we don't sell the coal, someone else will sell the coal. So you get the drug dealers' defence sort of thing happening as well. Um, oh, yeah, even Labor's... It's bipartisan. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So um, there is lots of obfuscation going on around shuffling the carbon emissions and trying to maintain the existing sort of system. And in a sense, we sort of have to, I think, hold them to account, call them to account on some of these moves that they make discursively and practically. Uh, that what we need is truly to confront climate change is radical and dramatic uh, reductions in carbon emissions at a scale that probably will endanger economic growth. Um, but then we've got the coronavirus at the moment that's endangering economic growth. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough one, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to say, so this is why accounting is actually important in this space. Um, <laughs> um, it's all about the boundary. So you can say you're reducing your emissions, but of what? Yeah, so um, it's, it's really important if you're ever reading someone's report or claim that they're reducing their carbon emissions that you look at the boundary. Now, what are they included within that? And yeah, well, climate change is a global problem. Greenhouse gases are global emissions, so you cannot cut a boundary around Australia or around Sydney or, you know, it just doesn't work that way. So one of my most efficient forms of activism is when I, uh, for market forces, I go to um, AGMs of big banks and things and I ask them really awkward questions about environmental things and watch them squirm, which is a lot of fun. And both the questions, which are written by market forces and the answers go on the record. So it's really quite, and you know, for the amount of time I put in, really quite an efficient um, form of activism compared to lots of my others. Um, but now, I'm really pleased to say, market forces have started a campaign against uh, getting uh, Unisuper to divest. Um, if you haven't already uh, signed the open letter, please do. And uh, Alistair Fraser, who's sitting here, <laughs> um, and a few of us uh, are also trying to get this institution to divest. Not as many billions as uh, Unisuper has, but both in you know both those senses, we're complicit um, in in this. So um, anyway, I just thought I would um, put that forward as a, a suggestion of activism. Yeah. The the other thing I guess that's happening here is there is seems to be I understand a bit of a debate about whether the university will make some sort of statement or declaration around the climate crisis, and um, there seems to be some reticence to do that by the powers that be. But uh, that's an interesting thing to float out there that maybe institutions and organisations should step up in their public announcements about the urgency of the climate crisis. It's not a good look to teach the science and not follow it. I, in part, live in the rural area and um, I see farming practices around where I live which are 
we've got huge carbon emissions, massive, and it's totally unsustainable. Now, we all know that. My question is, given the bushfires that have happened recently, does this open a window for us to start doing things differently in this very carbon-intensive area? It's, you know, uh, agricultural uh, emissions um, and land use uh, emissions combine for about, uh, I believe, 22% um, of total carbon emissions. So, you know, the lion's share of our carbon emissions is fossil fuel burning for transportation and, and energy. Um, but there are these other sectors that are important as well. And the agricultural sector um, uh, is important. And there's uh, an opportunity for mitigation in that sector. Um, and that's a, an important part of the, the conversation. Um, you know, it also translates to, you know, what it is that we choose to, to eat, you know, and then there is a role for individual action. If we all, you know, decide to, you know, engage in more carbon-friendly, um, you know, dietary practices, well, then that, that puts pressure on the food industry to, to provide, you know, uh, carbon-friendly uh, options and alternatives. So that's, you know, there is no silver bullet. Um, there, we really do have to attack every single sector, and that includes the agricultural sector, and we need incentives in that sector that move the sector towards more carbon-friendly practices. There's a role for policy, for systemic change, and there's a role for individual action as well, individual choice. Yeah, I'm not across the agricultural sector is probably as much as I should be, but I get the impression there is a sort of a, a debate happening in that sector around regenerative agriculture. And there are certain farmers and landholders who get climate change and can see the impacts of the future and are sort of advocating for fundamental change in the way farming practices happen. And there's obviously industries like the wine industry, for instance, that, have, that are seeing climate change in, in terms of grape varieties and having to move south as the climate's changing. So it strikes me that there is a debate happening there. The problem seems to be that sort of rusted on um, national party vote that keep putting back these same people without naming names um, who have got policies which are just catastrophic around water use and the Murray-Darling and all this sort of thing. And I, I don't quite understand why that, that disconnect is happening when that sector is probably one of the most exposed in Australia to drought and climate impact. Very quickly, I want to follow up on, on a very important point, uh, important point there, which is the opportunity for mitigation in the agricultural sector um, you know, through regenerative agriculture. There will be far more demand for that if there's a price on carbon, because then that creates value to uh, carbon credits um, that that um, you know that are tied to carbon sequestration, natural carbon sequestration. So it, it, it isn't an exaggeration to say a price on carbon. Um, solves all sorts of problems. It puts a whole lot more pressure on the system in every sector to move in the direction we need to go. Could, could I actually ask you, are you seeing changes in your community? I, I live very close to Cabago. I'm not sure. My immediate contemporaries and friends, yes, I do see a change. I'm concerned that we're a small minority. So yes, we talk an awful lot about it. We talk about rotational grazing, we talk about permaculture, we talk about all of this. I just don't feel that there's enough of us to really make any impact. Thanks, you touched on this a minute ago. I'm curious your thoughts on what's the role of the university as an advocate for climate action? So is this even appropriate? You know, we do research, we do teaching, is it appropriate to be an advocate? And then if so, what, what should that maybe look like 
And just for context, the university is in the process, the University of Sydney is in the process of creating a sustainability strategy right now. I think we do have a role uh, as, I mean, the university likes, universities like to see themselves as sort of thought leaders in, in important public debates and have a, uh, a sort of a higher um, moral purpose in terms of the common good. And I think climate change really uh, gets to some pretty powerful changes in society that are going to, uh, that fundamentally challenge the common good in a whole range of ways. So I see um, a key role for academics and research and teaching to confront this challenge. And that means being out there, um, possibly in an advocacy role about the urgent problem that we face and the solutions that we need to embrace to confront that challenge. So that means you have to get politically active, I think. I don't think you can be, there's this myth of, of sort of impartiality on this space. I don't think you can be on this issue. I agree. And, you know, I'd point out academic freedom exists precisely so that uh, we have an outlet for speaking truth to power. Um, academia has always played a key role. Um, academics have played a key role. Uh, public intellectuals have played a key role in speaking truth to power. And uh, to abdicate that role is to create a, a vacuum, a vacuum that'll be filled in by other voices with a vested interest. And, and so it's important for us to occupy that space, in my view. Thanks, Tanya. Peter Hunt from the University of New South Wales. I'm doing a PhD in sustainability. My question is to both Michael and Chris. Um, it's about sustainable development goals under the UN's SDGs, climate action, Australia's rated red and moving steadily in the wrong direction. But the UN SDGs are based around a time period from 2015 to 2030. We've got no opportunity of achieving any positive result on climate action, as well as clean and affordable energy, one of the other goals. But the Labor Party's talking about trying to get to a carbon neutral position by 2050. What do we believe the timelines that we should be working towards are? Is 2050 far too late when it comes to climate action or is 2030 a more realistic goal? And how do we go about achieving that? So I'll, I'm sure we both have some thoughts here. I'm happy to tackle that first. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of talk about 2050 and Zali Stagel's bill, uh, you know, sort of emphasizes the importance of being carbon neutral. So that means basically zero by 2050. Well, to get to zero by 2050, we obviously have to make some progress in the meantime. Um, we sort of touched on this earlier, and that means reducing carbon emissions by a factor of two within the, you know, by 2030. So we have to be talking about both, but we can't, you know, I, I think it's dangerous to kick the can too far down the road to only be talking about the 2050 goals. It's very easy to defer any meaningful action when you're talking about, you know, the middle of the century. Uh, it's much more tangible when it comes to what we need to do when you talk about, you know, uh, a benchmark uh, by 2030. And so we, we do have to be talking about that 2030 benchmark. We have to be looking at where we are and what we still need to do. And there's a little bit of good news there. Some of you may have read that uh, global carbon emissions didn't go up this last year. Um, so they're sort of flat. And, and, and flat is the first step in sort of bending the curve downward. Um, you've got to stop rising before you can go down. So the good news is that we've, you know, we may be peaking emissions right now. And, and looking at the numbers, we know that in the past when that had happened, it was often related to, for example, an economic downturn. And almost certainly we will see a drop in global carbon emissions this year uh, because of coronavirus. And we're already seeing evidence of that. But the, the, the flat lining over the last year um, when you, know, the car you look at the carbon inventories, we know that that came from the move towards renewable energy. 
the, the displacement of fossil fuel energy. And so we are starting to see that decoupling of uh, economic growth and, and carbon growth. And, and that's a good first step. That's the good news. The bad news is that just remaining at that peak, you know, as long as carbon emissions right, right now, that's 50 billion tons of CO2 a year. As long as we're adding 50 billion tons of CO2 a year, CO2 continues to, to rise uh, dramatically. So we need to come down the other side of that curve. Flatlining, that's a good first step. Uh, we've got to. We, we've now got to come down the mountain, and we know that you know Paris commitments alone don't quite get us there. So if every country meets its Paris obligations, most countries are actually coming close. Even the United States will come very close without any support from the current president, from the Trump administration, because of what states and municipalities and businesses are doing. That's the good news. Um, but meeting Paris obligations alone. Uh, doesn't get us where we need to go. And so we have to go well beyond Paris. And we need to be in a position at the next you know, major climate conference for countries to say, not only you know, do we remain committed to our Paris obligations, but we're ready now to go well beyond them. Yeah, a couple of things. Um, I have problems with the SDGs because I think there's 13 of them, isn't there? Something like that. 17. I'm thinking 13 is the climate action one, if that's right. Um, and there's huge contradictions in there, isn't there? I mean, between this sustainable economic development, whatever the hell that is, and climate action. And if you're serious about climate action, and, and Mike's gone through some of the sort of the, the figures on that, but there was a talk I mentioned the other day that I saw Ian Dunlop, ex-fossil um, fuel exec, present around um, if we're serious about avoiding two degrees or 1.5 degrees, a lot of the IPCC um, projections are assuming a 60% chance of getting there. And his point, very good one, you, you wouldn't get on a plane if there was a 60%, only a 60% chance you'd get to Melbourne or whatever it was. We should be aiming at 90% or 99% if we're serious about risk analysis. And if that's the case, we actually don't have much, we don't have any carbon budget left currently. We really should be closing down coal, oil and gas now. So. The biggest problem I have is the lack of urgency that the political discussion has got them over. It's this magical thinking that, yeah, we'll do something 2030, 2040, but for now, we'll just keep going. And if we're serious about engaging with climate action and the SDGs, we actually need to be doing stuff now, like no new coal mines, um, winding back existing fossil fuel use, possibly quite mandatory and authoritarian controls of fossil fuel consumption, like we see the urgency on the coronavirus, but we're not seeing that with a, a threat that you know, is, is probably far more profound. Hello, Martina Lindlöcker. Um, I'm heading the Center for Corporate Sustainability and Environmental Finance at Macquarie Uni. So a lot of our work focuses on this intersection between the climate impacts and how that impacts, for example, uh, large investment funds and also the superannuation funds. So I agree with the sentiment uh, that there's obviously a lot of action happening at the moment. Um, well, one of my concerns is at the minute is that we sort of see a lot of action where action is easy. So for instance, we see a lot of big announcements around divestment, um, but in many instances, the divestment is only happening if the fossil fuel stocks underlying the divestment are actually already underperforming. Similarly, we see a lot of interest in investing in clean energy when this actually makes good economic sense, but there's obviously a greater sort of hesitancy to really make those types of investments that are expensive and that potentially also have flow on effects for all of us in terms of we actually have to pay for this transition to happen. So what's your view? And I think that's a question to, to all panel members. Um, 
how can we actually facilitate those deeper and more difficult uh, sort of transitions and how can we also get that support um, essentially also on, on all different levels so from the policy level corporate level and personal level and um, essentially in those instances where those types of transitions will be costly and will really have an economic impact thank you yeah thanks we won't like the answer um, <laughs> I'm strong on the view that you need regulatory responses. Um, and again, you know, riff on the coronavirus thing. It's kind of interesting to parallel government reactions to this obvious near-term threat with the virus. The government step in and they intervene. And we had the Attorney General this morning on the radio talking about we're going to be introducing laws that we probably, or applying laws we probably haven't seen before about sort of mandatory detention of people and closing down institutions. So in periods of previous crisis, the Great Depression, World War II, the state stepped in in a fairly authoritarian manner uh, for the common good. And yet with the climate crisis, a crisis that threatens the future, not just of a sort of organized society, but probably of our species. And this is pretty existential stuff. There's a complete absence of that discussion around regulatory intervention. And it can take a fairly minimal form in the form of carbon tax or carbon price, but it might take a more mandatory form and, and far-reaching form in a whole range of other areas. But yet that discussion isn't there. Um, so how do we get to the hard to, the, the high fruit, the hard to pick fruit, whatever the pet metaphor is? We need mandatory regulatory intervention, but unfortunately the political discourse is completely opposed to that in this space. I, I agree. I mean, as long as, you know, uh, actions on the part of the business community are, are entirely in the voluntary realm, we can only expect to get so far, right? There has to be some sort of regulatory or economic uh, pressure on them. Uh, as, you know, and this gets at this issue of scope one, scope two versus scope three. Uh, it's very easy to, to talk about all the progress you're making on scope one, scope two, when in fact a lot of your, your carbon is in, in scope three. And until there is a price on carbon and incentives, um, to, to move us in that direction, I, I think that's going to continue to be a real challenge. I, I suppose I have an alternative um, view, which is um, at the moment we have Moody's and S&P taking a very, very good look at the physical risks of climate change and um, asking themselves questions like, well, what does that mean for Australia? So would, what, what's, what credit rating should we give, for example, to Queensland? In 2050, when there's no Adani, there's no agricultural sector, because there's no water, there's no Great Barrier Reef, there's no tourism. Um, I've heard quite a few people in the investment community, um, and I know um, uh, Carney at the Bank of England, he's saying this quite regularly, um, that we're, we're at risk of having a Minsky moment, yeah? So where the market could collapse and pull out of coal. So that's the transition side of things, but then there's the physical risk side of things. And I suspect that the credit rating agency, um, Moody's last year, they bought up 427. They're a um, global climate advisory service. So they're actively looking at this space. So what would it mean for Australia? How rapidly could things shift, Martina? Well, I don't know, you're, you're probably more of an expert on this than I am. Um, how rapidly would things move if we lost our triple credit A rating? Another question I have is around green bonds. I know that people in industry are wanting green bonds, but there isn't enough supply. So, and that's possibly an opportunity 
in terms of investing in, in technologies that aren't the lowest hanging fruit. Again, that's probably something where you would have more expertise, Martina. To that. So what we are seeing at the moment is, you know, and I think I agree with all the points that you made is, you know, the action at the moment is really around where the easy action is. You know, the transition could potentially happen really quickly, um, but essentially, right, I think um, what we are currently seeing is yet action is happening, but I don't actually think it will be fast enough to really get us um, up to a trajectory where we will where we will even achieve or close to coming, uh, you know, achieving the the targets. Um, and then even you know when we look at the targets, they're probably also rather you know high, right? 1.45 degree of warming is already like a pretty high sort of target of warming. So I think the the political will I think will be definitely important, and we see that especially looking into overseas example, right? When we look at Germany, right? But the transition there has been going for 30, 40 years, and it was a very long and difficult and protracted sort of process, right? And here, I don't think we have even sort of scratched the surface, right? So now looking into 30, 40 years into the future, that gets us into 2050, 2060 sort of territory, right? And that is sort of my concern at the moment, right? That essentially the, the transition speed is not really quite up to where we, where we need this to be. And again, what we see from the financial community is, right, the moment that a dollar uh, opportunity becomes available, the, um, I think the desire to act is, is very fast, right? But in the absence of, and that's, that's essentially coming down to, you know, what we all want, right? And uh, for some of us, it seems to be the cheaper options and the cheaper mm. products, right? Yeah. Again, though, I think um, by 2060, the market will have moved. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> so perhaps related to this in terms of the, rap the rapidity with which we can make change, what's your view on carbon offsets and how could they be used to, um, for sequestration uh, effectively and perhaps even to reduce carbon emissions in the longer term? Thanks, it's a really good question. I'm sure we both have thoughts about this. Um, so my view, you know, carbon... Um, Offsets, you know, uh, to some uh, seem too much like uh, medieval indulgences, right? Um, it's a permission to pollute. Uh, and if they're not verifiable, um, they're not worth the paper they're printed on. And one of the issues, for example, you know, carbon offsets tied to reforestation. Well, you know, one of the things that we haven't accounted for is the impact of climate change on sort of uh, forest uh, carbon sequestration. As some of you have probably heard, Australia emitted twice as much carbon from the bushfires as it did from fossil fuel burning over the last year. Um, it, it tripled uh, Australia's carbon emissions. And so that's something we haven't fully taken into account. Uh, you know, if we're trying to bury uh, carbon um, in forests and those forests burn, we lose all that. Um, now, there are certain sectors, and we alluded to the, you know, I alluded to this earlier. Um, my view is that where there are real opportunities for mitigation, that's what we should be doing rather than carbon offsets because of the potential fraught nature of those carbon offsets. On the other hand, in areas very difficult to decarbonize sectors for, for the time being, like aviation, like cement production, there probably is a role um, for, for offsets. It's better than doing nothing. Um, and you know, ultimately, as I said before, if we can decarbonize everything else, you know, the low-hanging fruit, 
um, and, and those sectors are all that remain, we're most of the way there. And it's easy to imagine that there will, will be technological innovations that'll play out over the next decade or two that will allow us to fundamentally decarbonize those sectors. So, so I think offsets play a role in certain sectors, but we can't allow them to become a crutch for not engaging in, in meaningful mitigation. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of the crutch about offsetting in a whole range of biological offsets, carbon offsets. And there's, there's, there's a lot of literature which now documents the, the problems of um, ensuring um, that those offsets are actually what they say they are. I mean, the, the forest offsetting aspect around, um, will those forests be there in 50 years, 100 years to offset the carbon that we're emitting now? And there's a sort of a temporal um, uh, obfuscation going on there that we can emit now and sort of hopefully that'll be offset in the future. The other side, I guess, with offsetting is we've got offsetting schemes which are encouraging um, economic development in developing economy settings. And there's sort of the unintended consequences that, as Kevin Anderson's pointed out at, at Manchester, and he's quite a critic of, of carbon offsetting as a, a sort of a major climate um, response, that that can actually encourage uh, further emissions through greater economic growth and so the wheel turns. So there are lots and lots of known and unknown consequences or offsets that can actually send us the wrong way. And I think the answer is, as Mike has pointed out, in the sectors where we can't easily mitigate the emissions, offsetting has a role to play, but it's a sort of a measure of last resort and it needs to be very closely monitored and standards need to be rigorous around uh, the sort of the, the rigour of those, those offsetting schemes. At the moment, it seems to be a bit of a free-for-all. And I'm thinking of examples like in the aviation industry where we're encouraged as individual consumers to offset our emissions. And we pay often a paltry price that's not actually uh, accurate in terms of the actual quantum of emissions that we're producing for a potentially future offset that's not there. So it needs to be much greater, I think, rigour and the regulation of that as well. I think just to bring it back to an accounting perspective, excuse me, yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, we just don't have enough offsets to account for all of our emissions. Um, uh, our books just won't balance. So, you know, it's, it's got, they've got to be, we've got to use them intelligently, you know, for those things where we cannot find any other means. Right, well, it's pretty clear that there's enormous political pressure on figures, on accounting, right? And when you come back to global carbon emissions, and that report that, the, that it's flatlined or maybe decreased, the pressure on those numbers is huge. And they're also calculated by an incredibly complex task. It's a, incredibly difficult to do. All the countries in the world, everyone up, uploading their figures, where's the auditing to make sure that that is all correct and true? And then the next step, of course, is that supposing we supposedly reduce or flatline our emissions in the carbon carbon dioxide in the atmosphere continues to rise without any change in the curve. There's no sign in the atmospheric concentration change in response to that carbon emissions decline. What then? I mean, and the, and the temperature continues to go up. What, what happens then? Or, or, or if the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere flatlines and decreases and the temperature continues to go up, how do you address that? Well, uh, so we, we have to be guided by the underlying physics um, and the, the physics as is, you know, uh, contained within the climate models that we use for these projections. And so if that were to happen, if CO2 concentrations were to stop going up and we saw the 
you know, the, the, the surface of the earth continue to rise, uh, temperature of the earth continue to rise, that would violate some basic principles. Um, and and, and we, I don't envision that happening. I feel confident enough in our understanding of the underlying physics. It, it wouldn't say, be the first time that's happened in science, though. Well, there, there can be surprises, and there certainly have been surprises in store when it comes to things like ice sheet dynamics. There are processes that we didn't envision in our simple models decades ago that we are now seeing play out, and now we understand that that's accelerating the, the, um, you know, the, the collapse of uh, ice, ice shelves. The, 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 when ice shelves collapse, that allows the inland ice to, to surge out to sea. You get cracks in the ice that allow meltwater to uh, penetrate to the bottom and lubricate the, 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 the bottom of the ice sheets, and that allows it to surge out to sea. more quickly. So it's certainly the case that as we learn more about the, um, you know, the underlying processes and we better represent them in the models, we find that things can happen faster um, and, and the amplitude of uh, responses can potentially be greater. But when it comes to something as basic as the surface temperature of the Earth, there's no evidence at all that our, our, our fundamental understanding is wrong. Um, you know, everything that we have seen, um, the observations, the comparisons with the models, uh, bear out that our understanding at that global scale of, you know, quantities like uh, the surface temperature, global surface temperature, are pretty solid. So, you know, and you're right, you know, the carbon emissions, we have to be uh, careful because they're self-reported and there's been some question, for example, about the numbers reported by China. But there are various ways to, well, yeah, there, there are cross-checks that you can do. We have flux measurements. We can actually measure CO2 directly in certain areas. We don't have those estimates everywhere, but we have enough sort of ground truthing to get a basic sense whether those, those carbon emissions numbers are right. And so if we see you know, carbon emissions come down as measured in the way that we measure them, I am quite confident that we will see CO2 stop rising in, in the atmosphere, and we will see temperatures stabilize. I'm, I'm, I'm confident enough, based on my understanding of the science, to say that that's true. It's all tied to carbon emissions coming down, and, and to me, that's the real challenge. That's what we need to do. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sufficiently across some of this, but I understand there are some sectors where we're not picking up the carbon emissions in sort of national accounting. I think uh, shipping, um, I understand shipping and aviation, there's some issues there about uh, global trade, whether we're picking up those emissions in the national carbon accounting. Uh, again, Kevin Anderson and Alice, Alice Bowes have been writing a fair bit about this uh, quandary about how we capture that in national carbon accounting. So that's a big worry given the growth projections for global aviation and shipping. Okay, well, I'm just going to um, end today's session just with uh, one final sneaky question. Um, and you've got to answer it in one sentence. How would you respond to a climate denier? I wouldn't, no. Uh, and, and I mean that to some extent. We've moved on. Um, we have to stop entertaining, you know, the idea that, that denial, this is an ongoing run-on sentence with multiple clauses. <laughs> <laughs> we have to stop entertaining, um, you know, the notion that, uh, that cl uh, climate denial is, uh, you know, you know, deserves our attention, is legitimate, um, deserves being part of, of the discourse. We have to move on. And, and just one last point, which is part of this run-on sentence, um, <laughs> um, you know, at some point you give up. 
right? We're not going to win everybody over. Some people are so ideologically dug in, it's become purely tribal and ideological to them that it's not about evidence. It's not about, uh, uh, you know, uh, reality. Um, you have to move on because we're not going to win everybody over. And the time that you waste trying to bring along a climate change scenario who is entrenched in their views could better be spent on trying to bring along the confused middle, the, the people who are actually winnable to the side of the science. Uh, I would probably say something like, if you're wrong, what's the worst that could happen? All right. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming today. Thank and thank you.